We're spending all tens of billions of dollars on research. Are we spending any money on vaccine injuries at all? Today, I sit down with Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. We've now been two years trying to obtain the unredacted emails. We're down to the last 50 pages. So that's where all the incriminating evidence is. He is a member of the Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, as well as the Budget and Finance Committees. We're underwriting the leftist agenda in Silicon Valley Bank. And we're doing it in a way that's just going to make the next crisis probably come sooner and it'll be worse. In this deep dive interview, we discuss why he was one of Congress's earliest skeptics of COVID lockdown and vaccine mandates, his thoughts on the banking crisis and the Russia-Ukraine war, and what he sees as the path forward for America. I try and remind people, Venezuelans voted themselves into poverty. Okay, we could do the same thing here. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Senator Ron Johnson, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me on. I have to say, I'm going to dub you a COVID response skeptic. Um, I mean, all the way from the beginning, you were already asking pretty big questions publicly about just this whole idea of shutdowns. But I want to sort of focus in on a particular time and see if you, if you, if you remember this time. Sort of in mid-March of 2020, there was this moment where the whole narrative shifted from it's just another virus, nothing to worry about. It's a few days. And then it suddenly shifts to we have to lock down our borders. And then pretty quickly, we have to lock down the country. Oh, I remember it well. Uh, first of all, I, I'll, I'll take that, uh, that moniker. Uh, I think skeptic to me is a synonym for science. I mean, science is about being skeptical. And I think uh, one of the greatest tragedies of the entire pandemic episode is we haven't even been allowed to ask the questions. But no, I remember uh, very early on in the, in the pandemic, I, you know, watching the video coming out of China, everybody in their moon suits. Um, it, it was alarming, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We'd, we've certainly heard of Ebola, of MERS. You know, Ebola had what, about a 40% death rate or infection fatality rate. Uh, MERS had something like 30. SARS was eight to 10%. So were we dealing with something like that? We, we just didn't know until uh, we had the Princess Cruz, and then you had John Ioannidis uh, analyze that, and his analysis of, the, of what happened on the Princess Cruz pretty well stood the test of time. Uh, this is a, a deadly disease if you were elderly, if you had certain comorbidities, but if you were young and healthy, it, it would be a flu-like type of disease. Um, so you know, I, I glommed on to, to that analysis. Um, I knew that there was no way you could shut down the American economy. I mean, the, the, way, the way people like Anthony Fauci were talking about is, you know, 50-day shutdown to flatten the curve. Well, what exactly are you going to shut down? You know, we're still going to need hospitals operating. We're still going to need pharmacies operating. We're still going to need grocery stores operating. We're still going to need gas stations. The economy had to continue to operate. So some, somewhere in that time frame, uh, you know, a comment to a reporter somewhere said, you know, listen, we, we tragically lose 36,000 people a year on the highway, but we don't shut down our highway system. I mean, we need a transportation system. So you know, we're going to have to we're going to have to gut our way through this thing, and, and uh, you know, f follow science as best we can, protect the vulnerable, uh, but we're going to have to carry on with life. And of course, you know, Fauci heard that uh, that was brought up in one of those uh, famous uh, press conferences. You know, he said that analogy was beyond the pale or, or some such comment. Now, I, I remember on one of our Senate calls with Anthony Fauci uh, about this time frame, and you get your 
opportunity to ask one question. And my question was directed to Anthony Fauci. I said, Dr. Fauci, you're, you're proposing these shutdowns. Are, are you taking into account that the human devastation, uh, the human toll, the economic devastation uh, that you're contemplating here? And he just, you know, you know just cavalierly said, oh, Senator, that's somebody else's department. I don't worry about that. Now, listen, if you're, if you're a doctor, you, know, you may be a specialized, but you've got to treat the whole patient. You have to understand what your cure is going to do to the patient. And he, he couldn't have cared less. Very early on, nothing about our response made sense. I mean, I, I was an early advocate for early treatment. When I, when I heard a possible possibility of a drug, hydroxychloroquine, if you remember, the, there was a state senator, I think, in Michigan that was treated with hydroxychloroquine. I heard about Dr. Zelenko, uh, Didier Rowe in, uh, in France. And I'm, I'm reading about these things, and I'm going, you know, the biggest, my concern was we wouldn't have enough of it. So I'm calling up, uh, uh, you know, the, the head of Novartis, you know, texting him. I mean, you, they, they'd, I think, donated 30,000 doses, 30 million doses to the national stockpile, but it wasn't being distributed. And, you know, my main concern again was would we have enough manufacturing capacity of, of a cheap generic drug like hydroxychloroquine? I had never heard of ivermectin at that point in time. I hadn't heard of budesonide. I hadn't heard of all these other molecules. I heard of vitamin D, which, by the way, Anthony Fauci took and told no one. Is that curious? He upped his intake of vitamin D. Why wasn't he talking about that early on? You know, one of the things I was most ridiculed for, and listen, I've been vilified, I've been ridiculed throughout this process. Um, during Omicron, you know, this is when the, the pandemic had really become politicized. You know, Democrats were freaked out by it. The Republicans were walking around. There's no way I'm going to wear a mask. And so I was on a telephone town hall with a few thousand constituents. And you know, I, I just was telling my constituents, I mean, a lot of them were probably Republicans, said, listen, take Omicron seriously. It, it, it's probably more contagious, probably less lethal, but still it can be a deadly disease. Take it seriously. There are things you can do. You can you know, take vitamin D, vitamin C, you know, gargle. Uh, there are things you can do. Now, I was using, you know, I, I mentioned gargling because there's a study on CDC's own website saying that gargling can reduce the viral load. Why not? I mean, what's, what's the worst thing that can happen? Fresher breath? But, you know, we, I've got Democrat operatives on those town halls. Within 10 minutes after that town hall, we had national media calling up my office. What's this thing about Senator Johnson saying Listerine will replace the vaccine? Of course, I didn't say that, but that was the narrative for two, for two weeks. So for, for whatever reason, there was a concerted effort not to promote or research or push any kind of early treatment, anything that might mitigate less than the severity of the disease. It was just get tested, you know, we'll spend tens of billions of dollars on tests, but then if you test positive, do nothing. Go home, afraid, isolate yourself, uh, hope you don't get so sick uh, that you have to go to the hospital, but if you do go to the hospital and then we'll a remdesivir in your arm, over 3000 bucks. Uh, you've had doctors on here, I'm sure, talk about how that uh, can be pretty harmful to your kidneys. Um, we'll put you on a vent, knowing that you know, 80, 90% of people that went on ventilation never got off it. Uh, so no, it, it, nothing made sense to me, because I'm 68 years old, I'll be 68 here soon. As long as I've been alive, it's you know, early detection, allows for early treatment, which, you know, reduces, produces better results, better healing, right? I mean, that's how we treat every other illness, cancers. You're trying to go for early detection. But in COVID, it was early detection and then do nothing. 
it was, it was insane. And our response to COVID, I would say, that's probably the best word to sum it up, insane. A miserable failure. The response sort of went in the face of all sorts of established, you know, suggested response, including in the CDC's own guidelines. There was a very small number of people, especially at the beginning, who were asking these sorts of questions. So, you know, what, what is it that you knew? You said you're reading these different things, but what, what is it that you knew to look at that a whole lot of people didn't, even some quite skeptical people? I think it was that I didn't have the level of fear others had. Um, I certainly had the concern up front, again, when you saw the, the, the Chinese in the moon suits. I mean, you, you heard these doctors that were treating, and then they, you know, young doctors just dying. Uh, so I had that concern. But then with, you know, with Johnny Anitas's uh, study on the, the Princess Cruise, and he said, okay, this is, you know, we'll get by this. And so, 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 I, so I didn't have the level of fear that they imposed on the rest of society. And I think that's the, that was their main tool. Uh, the technocrats, uh, the Fauci's of the world, they made sure that uh, the world was deathly afraid of this. And as a result, when you're deathly afraid, you're, you're looking for some relief from that fear. And then you got a guy like Fauci saying, well, I've got the cure here, I've got a vaccine. Um, but what was insane about it is, is we didn't pursue early treatment. We, we, didn't, we didn't look at all the different molecules, all the different generic drugs that were, that were on the shelf that have been used for decades safely. Uh, they had the kind of properties that uh, you'd, you'd be expecting in terms of you know, being antiviral or uh, anticoagulant or, or working with the, you know, respiratory illnesses. I mean, we, we just threw all that aside. You know, there, was, there was nothing in the pandemic plan uh, that called for shutdowns. Uh, Fauci said up front, masks aren't going to work. I mean, they didn't. I mean, all, all you need to know is here's the size of the, here's the, the particle size of the virus, here's the opening pores of a, of a mask. This doesn't work. You know, it might be marginally effective, but it wasn't something that you, you know, impose on everybody in your society. And then the way we shut the economy down, you know, we shut down all the, all the, little, all the little mom and pop shops, but we let the big box stores open. Um, you know, Bobby Kennedy writes in his uh, letter to liberals, a uh, 2021 study showed there's almost $4 trillion transfer of wealth from the middle class to big tech social media giants. So, I mean, th those are the people that were in charge of the narrative. And I think that's, you know, what, what's opened my eyes up is, you know, I, I've been referring to them as the COVID cartel. I'm talking about the, the Biden administration, the federal health agencies, big pharma, who has captured the big, the, the federal health agencies, then legacy media and the big tech social media giants and big farmers captured those as well. So they controlled the narrative and they controlled the narrative in a way that was highly beneficial to them. I mean, Amazon did great in the pandemic. The social media companies did great during the pandemic. Why? Because society was shut down. You had to use social media. You had to use big tech. There was also a kind of societal hysteria though around this, right? Fueled by you know some of these different players. So, so this is an actually this is another kind of debate that that's out there, right? There's on one end of the debate is there's these puppeteer overlords that are, you know, sort of pushing their message onto onto the society, and society just responds. And the other side is just simply that um, you know we've we've kind of turned into a safetyist kind of society where. The smallest threat can create a sort of mass hysteria like this. Where, where do you land on this spectrum? Well, unfortunately, it's very easy to manipulate a population. You know, we've seen this for decades. I mean, go, go back 
to you know to you know the beginning of, of newspapers and, and uh, mass media. Uh, you tell the big lie, and as people said, it take you know, the the truth hasn't even got up uh, put on his shoes before the lies travel how many times around the world. Um, so and unfortunately, it's very easy to manipulate a population, and the best way to manipulate them is with fear. I look at the pandemic as just an extension, for example, of climate change. Um, again, I, I don't deny climate change. I'm just not an alarmist. You know, climate has always changed. You look at the Vostok ice core sample. You know, we're in our fifth cycle of, of you know, temperature variations of 22.7 degrees over four to some thousand years. I know this is a diversion, but do you know how much the sea level has risen in the Bay of San Francisco since the last glaciation period, 10 to 20,000 years ago? 390 feet. So again, you know, climate has always changed. We have to adapt. We, we can't hold back tides. And yet there's a political movement that is seized on climate change. It, it used to be global cooling. I'm, I'm old enough to remember that. It was, you know, we're gonna, you know, a nu either nuclear winter or just a, you know, a climate-induced uh, winter. And we wouldn't be able to grow crops. And then that changed to you know, global warming. And then they couldn't quite decide. So they just, let's use the catch-all phrase, climate change. And they use that to scare people. So you got this little, you know, little uh, Scandinavian girl that uh, says the world's going to end in 12 years. I think AOC's done the same thing. The, the world's not going to end in 12 years. You know, we'll adapt. So I think, unfortunately, for the climate change alarmists, they weren't able to seize control to the extent they wanted to. So look at the pandemic. You know, this is even better. You know, <laughs> we can really scare the you-know-what out of the global population and we, we can gain control. We, we can start doing things like uh, vaccine passports and we can restrict your tra travel. I mean, people ought to be very concerned because now, now what are we going through? A potential bank crisis? Be very concerned about a central bank digital currency where they can just turn on and turn off your ability to purchase certain goods based on your social credit score. That's what happens in China. Do we want that in the U.S.? I think there's certainly people, the technocrats in the U.S., that would like to see that. And with this banking crisis, all of a sudden we're, we're insuring every deposit, no matter how large. Um, start asking some questions. Be skeptical. So I, I want to go back again to this question of what is it, why is it that you knew to look in all sorts of places? Like you said, you were reading Ioannidis very early. But it seems like, you know, most people weren't. I mean, even people that should be, right? Even people whose job it is to. Yeah. Right? So, well, first of all, I'm not a fan of the federal government. Um, you know, I think our founders were geniuses. They, they knew we're, we're imperfect men and women. And if we don't want to live in anarchy and chaos, we need some government. But boy, it better be limited. Because it came from tyrannical regimes. They, they understood how, how as government grows, your freedom recedes. And you know, the one essential ingredient in America is freedom. And unfortunately, I've, I've been witnessing it over my lifetime, uh, slowly but surely, our fellow citizens are willingly giving their freedom away for a false sense of security. I, I try and remind people, Venezuelans, an oil-rich nation, a, a, you know, a successful South American nation, those people, Venezuelans, voted themselves into poverty. They did it to themselves. Okay, we could do the same thing here. So I, I ran in 2010, basically on a platform of freedom. I've, you know, I've never abandoned that platform. And I'm watching the potential, well, talk about shutdowns. Well, that's limiting people's freedom. You shut down churches, but you keep liquor stores open. What's that about? 
So again, every action the Fauci's of the world uh, prescribed didn't make sense to me. So I, I remained skeptical, and then you know, I was fortunate enough because I was chairman of a, of a committee. I could hold hearings. You know, early on in February, we had Scott Gottlieb, uh, uh, others talking about how we, we don't produce drugs in this country, not, not the precursor chemicals, not the uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients. Uh, that's a vulnerability. We ought to address that. We still haven't. Trillion-dollar-plus trillion, trillion infrastructure bill, we didn't address that problem. Um, but, you know, then, then I held you know, my, my eight May hearing with Johnny Anitas, because I, I, I was trying to put this in perspective. I was trying to calm things down. I, I remember even talking about the difference between Ebola, MERS, SARS, and this. But then uh, yeah, that's where I got introduced to Dr. Pierre Corey, who testified very late. I heard about him a couple of days before the hearing. I tacked him on. Uh, he was one of these doctors practicing in New York, a courageous doctor with the compassion to actually treat COVID patients. Uh, but he had an affiliation with the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, he came on and talked about his use of corticosteroids. Of course, he was vilified for it. Uh, that wasn't the standard of care. Fauci hadn't blessed it. But then I think about eight weeks later, they had the study come out of the UK on dexamethasone, a corticosteroid. Uh, and all of a sudden, people were using it. So I got connected to a group of doctors, a, a global network of eminently qualified doctors and medical researchers who had a completely different take on COVID. You know, the writers of the Great Barrington Declaration, you know, people like Michael Eden, a 30-year employee of Pfizer, uh, retired as the senior vice president of research with a background in toxicology. I'm talking to him. He, he was beside himself. When he heard what his colleagues were going to do with this gene therapy, he, he couldn't believe it. He said, I, I'm not understanding this. There's no, way, there's no way we're going to produce something that is going to have the body produce its own toxin, which is what the spike protein is and then encapsulated in something that is designed to permeate difficult to permeate barriers. Remember, we were told this, the, the vaccine was going to stay in the arm. They knew it wouldn't. They had the biodistribution studies on the lipid nanoparticles from the Japanese regulators that, that had to FOIA it. They knew it was going to biodistribute all over the body. And so you've got this gene therapy now biodistributing, you know, potentially ovaries, heart, brain, permeating the blood-brain barrier. We've got uh, mad cow disease uh, cases now being written about. But you, let's say this thing attaches to heart muscle. Well, now it has the heart muscle produce, for, it does two things. It, it, it juices the mitochondria, which is the engine of the cell. So it has the energy to produce a spike protein that's toxic to the body. So now the body's going to attack heart muscle. Well, that's how you get myocarditis. Again, I'm not a doctor, not a medical researcher, but you know, the, you, this stuff can be explained in layman's terms. You know, what happens if that gene therapy attaches to a cancer cell? It's inducing the cancer cell's mitochondria. You know, I'm certainly hearing, I'm certainly reading about, uh, you know, cancers coming out of remission roaring back to stage four. Uh, we're seeing, hearing about all the gynecological issues that are occurring, but it's all being covered up. So again, I, I got connected to a group of doctors who were educating me, telling me of their concern. You know, Gerd Vandenbosch, when did he write his uh, four-page letter to the WHO saying the last thing you want to do in the midst of a pandemic is do mass vaccination. You will drive variants. We've got a lot of variants, don't we? You know, what's that caused by? You're going to have variants anyway. The, the Mueller's ratchet, that's, you know, the natural evolution of, of, you know, a virus would be to become more contagious but less lethal because the virus wants to survive. It doesn't survive very well if it kills its host. So it kind of wants to keep the host alive, but it wants to get a lot more hosts. 
So again, they're just basic scientific principles of virology and immunology that were completely ignored. Could be very easily explained to laymen like me that I could understand uh, things like natural immunity. I mean, I, I was asked earlier, I had, I had an asymptomatic case of uh, COVID in late September, early October 2020. Um, I was around people, because I'm, I'm going to the White House, that type of thing, I'm always being tested. So I was around people who had COVID, I got tested, tested positive. Never had a symptom. Uh, so, you know, fr from that experience, I guess, suppose also, I, I had less fear. Plus, I had natural immunity. So, when I was asked after the vaccine came out, probably about February, well, Senator, are you going to get vaccinated? You know, my response was, you know, not, not to denigrate the vaccine, but first of all, be honest as I could. I said, well, listen, there, there aren't enough vaccines right now for the elderly who want them, so I'll hold off. Now, what I could have said, which would have been, you know, completely honest, there's no way I'm going to get that vaccine. Okay, I didn't say that. I, I didn't discourage the use. I just didn't promote it. Because, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical researcher, but I was skeptical. And I actually, and what I said during that interview, I said, besides, I've already had COVID. I've got natural immunity. It's probably going to be better than the vaccine. I was savage for that. You know, I was called an anti-vaxxer, which, you know, just probably underneath murder, rapist, racist, pedophile, you know, the last thing you want to be termed is anti-vaxxer, which is part of our problem now in terms of getting to the truth, in terms of the pandemic and other things as well. But it, no, I, I just, again, I was exposed, I was talking to people, I had, I had the good fortune of being connected to these, like I say, doctors and medical researchers that were, just had a completely different take, which is why in January of 2022, I held the event COVID-19, a second opinion. I, I thought it was about time that the public heard a different opinion on how we should be handling this pandemic, a different opinion on the vaccines, vaccine injuries. This information, some of which came out in your, you know, January 2022 hearing, you had another hearing in December of 2022, um, very slow to come out, although natural immunity finally is something that's understood to be superior to vaccination, which, would, which is what you would expect as kind of we've known. but. There's still many, many errors, including early treatment in many cases, that is that is unknown or vilified in the way that you just described, right? As you know, horse horse dewormer, you know, anti-vax. There's a lot. There's a whole bunch of slurs, yeah, right? A, a Nobel Prize-winning drug, and the FDA is denigrating it. Now, you know, my history of hearings in February with the Scott Gottlieb, in May with the Pierre Corey and Johnny Anitas. Uh, then in November with uh, Peter McCulloch and Harvey Risch and George Freed on early treatment, they were really focusing on hydroxychloroquine a month later, even though we, we were all vilified as the snake oil salesman of the Senate by Dr. Ja, who uh, never treated a COVID patient. Uh, December then of 2020 with Pierre Corey focusing on ivermectin. And by the way, Dr. Corey thought pandemic was over. I mean, he had the studies, used ivermectin, he was using it, others were using it. Don't even need the vaccine. We've got this covered. Uh, he was way too optimistic in terms of uh, the World Health Organization and, and NIH uh, actually looking at science. Um, you know, then I started looking at the VAERS system. Uh, Francis Collins was very cavalier in his comment to me about March, April, where there are already thousands of, of deaths reported on the VAERS system. Said, well, you know, Senator, people die. Um, I got connected to the 
addressing injured groups through redressing and really Ken Rutgers and his wife. I held an event in June of 2021 letting these people tell their stories. Let the vaccine injured tell their stories. We were all vilified for that. I had another one in D.C. with uh, not only vaccine injured but medical experts in November 2021, then followed up with the second opinion event in January and, and uh, uh, the, the final one in December of 2022 about vaccines, what they are, how they operate, how they can cause injury. So I've been pretty consistent on this. I've written over 50 oversight letters, um, things on lot-to-lot -lot variation, you know, what, what are they doing, granting a uh, full approval for Comirnaty, but uh, still just extending the emergency use for what's available here in the U.S. I mean, what, why are you pulling the, the, the wool over the eyes of the American public? What are you trying to do here? Now, I've, I've asked so many relevant questions, got so very few answers from this. It's, uh, again, just, just increases my skepticism. The information in many cases is actually out there. The studies have been done to show you know, mechanisms of harm, for example with the vaccines in a whole bunch of areas. Pfizer itself, I think, you know, I think we did, we did the FOIA, we saw they knew about 500 different, different uh, types of harm. You've written 50 oversight letters. And so I guess the question is, you know, about impact. Do you feel like this is having an impact? You're, you're a very lonely voice, not alone, not alone in Congress, but, but a lonely voice. Well, and I try and tell other people on this journey with me that those of us who have our eyes open, that have been fighting this, this battle, uh, take some comfort in, the, in the, the low uptake of COVID vaccines in the very young. Uh, we are having some impact. Parents aren't subjecting their children to this. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I would say also uh, the result of this, I mean, the, the excuse for suppressing all this information, the, the excuse for censoring it, the excuse for vilifying people like me and others is that, well, we can't do anything that will increase vaccine hesitancy. And I think if you really want to get to the, the core issue here, it's, it's that. Um, they failed miserably because by lying to the American public, by, by labeling truth disinformation, by not being transparent and honest, um, they've increased vaccine hesitancy. And certainly with a guy like me, who was never an anti-vaxxer. I've gotten them all. You know, my kids got them all. Um, but now I'm, again, I'm skeptical. And so I start reading books, Dissolving Illusions, Turtles All the Way Down. You see the documentary, Vaxxed. Um, you read a host of other books, and you wonder, why isn't this being talked about? Why, why aren't questions even allowed? Uh, you know, to me, the laws they passed in 1986 when it seemed like we were going to just completely uh, bankrupt or eliminate all vaccine manufacturing because of our litigious society, uh, you probably needed some protection so we could produce some vaccines. I mean, so again, that, that's certainly the, the narrative back then. So you have to pass these laws to uh, protect the vaccine manufacturers. I don't think it was contemplated that uh, that would lead to an explosion of childhood vaccines because there's no liability on the part of the manufacturers. And so, you know, I first talked to Bobby Kennedy about this. Uh, he said, well, Ron, let me give you a, a five minute uh, primer on, on vaccines about 45 minutes later. Uh, but he starts out, you know, we're about the same age. When, when we were growing up, we got three vaccines. You know, now it's what, 60 or 70? And they're doing them in multiple, in multiples. Um, 
Yeah, I think what we're, we're finding out with the COVID vaccine, you know, things like antibody-dependent enhancements, uh, things can go wrong. Uh, now, now, you know, after so many doses, uh, your body's producing these uh, uh, the, the antibodies that actually suppress your immune system. It's the same stuff that they try and juice to suppress uh, reaction to allergies, to, to alleviate allergic symptoms. Again, again, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical researcher, but there's so much of this information out there that certainly concerns a guy like me. Why is it concerning the Anthony Fauci's and the Collins's and the Walensky's and the people who've replaced these folks? Why is it concerning our federal health agencies? And I think the answer is pretty obvious because they are thoroughly and completely captured by big pharma. And I think the, you know, the video, which was pretty interesting about this, the serial passing uh, for mutations of that, that uh, Project Veritas undercover video. I think more important than that statement was really the way he was just talking just as a given, the, the, the revolving door between the federal health agencies and Big Pharma. Um, you know, as a regulator, you're not going to really seriously regulate or question your future employer or your previous employer who will be your future employer in the, you know, once again. Um, so it's a thoroughly corrupt process right now. I want to touch on something you mentioned a little bit earlier with this hearing back in February of 2020 with Scott Gottlieb about the precursors being manufactured outside. So, you know, I just want to mention that Big Pharma has been fighting tooth and nail to prevent the reshoring of the creation of those precursors, which I found fascinating pre-pandemic. This, this is not a new thing. And as you said, right, this hasn't changed. No. This hasn't. I mean, it's kind of unbelievable, and we seem to be somehow unable to fix this. It's not simple. I understand that, but at least you could put the. Yeah, I wouldn't. First of all, I wouldn't think that refining, producing precursor chemicals. I realize refining is an environmentally dirty process, but you can clean it up. It costs money to clean it up. Uh, I wouldn't think it's a highly labor-intensive operation. So. It doesn't, there's not that big economic advantage of doing this in the low labor countries. I think it's more the, more the environmental concerns, it's the cost concerns. So if big farm is opposed to it, it's, it's, you know, the only explanation there is, well, it would cost them more money to produce it here. And there's always going to be pressure on the cost of drugs. Um, so they, they want to produce them in as cheap area as possible. Don't worry about the national security concerns of that. So it's, but it's precursor chemicals, it's that basically refining process, and then taking those precursor chemicals and turning them into active pharmaceutical ingredients, which occurs primarily in, in India, I think is the, the main supplier there. And also then the compounding production of, of pills as well occurs. You know, we do some, some of that in the U.S., but a lot, a lot of that is occurring overseas, and I don't have a real good feeling that the FDA is really tracing that process or, or bird dogging that or, or regulating the manufacture of those things before they're all of a sudden put in uh, little pill bottles here in the U.S. So the FDA, they're, they're uh, vilifying a Nobel award winning drug like ivermectin. At the same time, they're, they're not doing what they're really supposed to do, which is ensuring drug safety, making sure that all the studies were completed and continued to be run on the, on the vaccine, for example, they're just they're just turning a blind eye toward it. It's just called it's willful ignorance. So they're not doing their job. We pass a, a trillion dollar infrastructure package. 
you know, I was raising the issue internally, so we ought to set some money aside for that. Nah. Well, see, we've been talking a lot about capture here, right? And cap capture of, say, agencies by the pharmaceutical industry. Well, this structure with all these precursors, you know, with the vast, vast majority of these precursors coming from communist China, which, by the way, has, you know, an un unrestricted warfare doctrine where it uses precisely these sorts of methods as a form of warfare or perhaps even capture. I mean, this is, this is what I would worry about, is that if Big Pharma has captured our agencies, what if Chinese Communist Party has captured Big Pharma? I mean, and this would be a potent way to do it, wouldn't it? Well, they certainly have influence on medical journals. They certainly have influence in terms of universities, access to all the, the research that we're funding uh, that's going, you know, it's a pipeline right to the, the Chinese government. Uh, that, that was so absurd about what uh, Anthony Fauci did in funding all these studies, uh, subcontracting them out to people that then subcontract them out to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yeah, if, if, you, if you are cooperating in any way, shape, or form with uh, a, a Chinese entity and uh, you know, Chinese citizens in, in science, you, you're basically cooperating with the People's Liberation Army. Pretty much one and the same. Uh, so you're conducting all this dangerous research. You're certainly skirting the moratorium on gain of function. And then you cover it up in late January, early February of 2000, 2020. And we about this quite some time. We, we still can't get you know, the unredacted documents to, to make the full case. Uh, what's that all about, too? Well, so, so so what do you make, Senator? What do you make of the fact that now uh, President Biden has signed the bill to declassify all of the origin? Uh, well, we'll, we'll see what he actually declassifies. You know, the deep state knows what it did, and the deep state does not give up its secrets very easily. I, I was actually shocked when four thousand pages came out uh, from uh, HHS of uh, Fauci's emails. Uh, even in a heavily redacted state, they were very incriminating. Okay, we, we know a lot about uh, what, what was happening there the, the last couple of days, January, early February, where you know, they're, they're assembling the, the group of people that, that are experts in this field, and you know, the initial reaction was, this is, this is man-made. And that's, by the way, that's you know, my, my group experts, things like you know, uh, computational biologists, they just think, absolutely, this is a chimeric, this is, this is a man-made virus. Um, but anyway, so th that was the initial reaction from the group until they found out that that wasn't favored by Anthony Fauci, and then they did a 180, and all of a sudden, no, that's, that's a conspiracy theory. Um, it, it's amazing what we already have in the, in the redacted form. But we, we've now been, for two years, trying to obtain the unredacted emails that were provided under FOIA. We're, they won't give them to us. What they do is they allow us to read them 50 pages at a time, unredacted, take notes. We took the 4,000, narrowed our search down to 400, and they've been doing this 50 at a time. We're, we're down to the last 50 pages. And it's probably been, well, it's many months. They're still not giving us the final 50 pages. So that's where all the incriminating evidence is, right? But, but again, it's just obvious that Anthony Fauci was covering up uh, his funding that uh, went through you know, various uh, U.S. Uh, actors into Wuhan. And it's also very obvious that they, they suspected very early on that this absolutely could have been a lab leak. And so, so why is it a couple days later they're saying that's conspiracy theory? 
Why are they changing the narrative? You know, why are they providing misinformation? I mean, I've, I've got an email I'm going to be talking to uh, Secretary Sarah about uh, later today in a finance committee hearing, uh, showing that uh, you know, the, the people here are saying it's about a 50-50 split between natural versus lab. But that's not what they said a few weeks later when they said that was a conspiracy theory to even consider lab leak. So what was going on there? Again, it's just another reason I'm suspicious, I'm skeptical, because what you see there doesn't make any sense. There's no innocent explanation for what we see there. So now we have a few different sources of evidence that tell us that, you know, at some point very early on, the governance of the pandemic response shifted from HHS to, you know, becoming a national security priority. So something like the NSC or DHS are now involved or perhaps driving it. And then, you know, we have these uh, pandemic simulations, war games, a couple of which, you know, look remarkably similar to what was actually done. Identical. Well, I, 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 right, right. So near identical. So, you know, that to me suggests that, you know, whoever was really running things were just was saying, oh, they believe that these war games were somehow successful, which again, you know, flies in the face of, you know, basic epidemi epidemiology, bizarrely. I still, this is, I still have trouble grasping that. But how, how important do you think was this to, to the pandemic response? So, so on the one hand, when you have CRISPR technology, you have, you know, people with pretty, you know, unsophisticated labs being able to splice genes, you'd be negligent as a government not to be concerned about that, not, not to, to figure out well, how can we respond if, if somebody uses this in biological war warfare. So that, that to me seems you'd be negligent if you weren't doing that. So when you, when you realize they're, they're doing some of these simulations, um, you know, listen, I, I had hearings with the, the blue ribbon panel on, on bio uh, threats. And, and even the fact that they ran the vaccine through a Department of Defense appropriation process, you know, other transactional authority, there can be an innocent explanation on why they would do that. I mean, just even the distribution of it. Nobody else had the distribution capability other than the, the US military, probably. Um, and you needed something like FEMA, and you needed things like DHS. I mean, this is, again, national health emergency. You've got to take extraordinary measures. What concerns me, and I think what is the legitimate concern, is then, okay, taking that route, what safety studies were just completely bypassed? Uh, what safety studies continue to be completely bypassed? You know, I, I've listened to the uh, teleconference they had in October of 2020, uh, CDC, uh, FDA talking about the, the safety surveillance systems, should they get uh, you know, emergency use uh, authorization for the, the vaccine? And they were talking about VAERS, and they, I mean, they were going to be looking at that closely. And if, if there was somebody that had uh, an adverse event that resulted in a couple days of lost time, they're going to have a CDC representative on the phone talking to that individual, getting to the bottom of that. That was total BS. They, they never intended to do that. They certainly didn't do that. Um, and what they did instead is when the numbers started mounting on VAERS, and by the way, we're up, we're up to 35,000 deaths reported worldwide. That may be not proof of causation. It sure gives me cause for concern. But as, as you colloquially say, five minutes ago, VAERS was the system for basically getting a signal, a safety signal, right? And suddenly it became this. Well, then you had the V-safe system set up specifically to track this. 
now also set up not to track real serious things. You know, was, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't put in myocarditis. You know, all you put is, uh, you know, did you have some days where you had to miss work or school or whatever, or did you seek medical care? I think those are the, the two big parameters. But you have, what, 25% of the people, the 10 million people that signed up for VSAFE, 25% missed work or, or, I mean, were, you know, were obviously affected, and I think, was it 8% yeah. that uh, sought medical care? And then it was Aaron Siri, I think, that had to sue the federal health agencies to release that data. Again, the CDC's job is to gather health information and disseminate, disseminate it to the public, to, to the medical profession, in, in an open and transparent way. It, it's not to decide not to collect information because they don't want to know the results. It's not to hide the information that you gather. It's not to doctor it and, and cherry pick what they use to present misinformation. But that's what the CDC is doing. They're not being honest. They're not being transparent. It makes me skeptical. So, Senator, in this recent Twitter files uh, dump that Matt Taibbi published, uh, it's, there's a lot of, I think, very interesting COVID-related communications and censorship of specific, some specific accounts. Taibbi basically says that it's as if these public health people are acting to elicit a, a particular behavioral response as opposed to presenting information, you know, truthful information. So in my mind, it turns on its head, you know, I, I guess the expectation, perhaps the expectation of the public, when you hear information, you imagine that it's true. But to learn that maybe a lot of the information that you've been given is designed not to be truthful, but designed to elicit particular population response. I find this deeply troubling. Well, th th there's a very interesting panel that's on videotape. I think this is 2019 from the Milken Institute. This is Rick Bright, who, by the way, was the guy who sabotaged uh, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, he's on a panel with Anthony Fauci at the Milken Institute, and they're bemoaning the fact that we don't have a mass vaccination program. And one of them says, well, it's probably going to take a pandemic to really accomplish that goal. And this is 2019. Well, they got their pandemic. And, you know, we talked earlier how, you know, I, I was, because uh, I was concerned about the production capability of hydroxychloroquine, and that's Novartis that produces that. So I got uh, the, the CEO of Novartis on, on the line, and we were texting each other. Uh, he was talking about, oh, yeah, we've got... Uh, you know, 12 different trials, the results of those will be coming in, in like May or June. And, but all of a sudden, in about mid-April, he went radio silent, dark. I've, I've never talked or texted to him since. It just seems like at some, at some moment, pretty early on in the pandemic, the decision was made throughout the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry, through, throughout federal health agencies globally, that the solution was going to be a vaccine. And, you know, they already had the patents on it. They already had the mRNA. It was just a matter of, I guess, you know, it wasn't really being developed. They had it. It was just kind of, I think they kind of went through the motions over the course of about uh, nine, ten months to, to finally be able to say, okay, we've done all the studies. They didn't do all the studies. And in fact, I think the studies that they were, that, and I think more and more of this will be revealed, the studies that they were doing were probably pretty alarming. You know, for example, the biodistribution of the lipid nanoparticle when you have, you know, concentration, things like the ovaries. Um, so, 
again, I, I, don't, I don't know what uh, charade is being played in terms of development of vaccine. They, they, they've been working on mRNA. They were just waiting for an opportunity to unleash it globally as part of a, uh, a mass vaccination program. And that's, that's, to me, that's what this has all been about. Uh, yeah, there's profits for the pharmaceutical companies, but uh, also the hubris of people like Anthony Fauci, who, you know, AIDS, you know, don't, don't worry about therapies. You know, let's deny Bactrim to AIDS patients. Let, let a few, you know, tens of thousands of people die uh, because we're not approving Bactrim to address their, their pneumonia. Uh, we're going to get a vaccine, vaccine. Well, he never got one for AIDS, but, you know, he got one for the pandemic. So here we are. Um, it's early 2023. Um, these vaccines are still being authorized by the FDA. This, these, you know, bivalent vaccines that are, I guess, less tested, quite a bit less tested, are being approved for infants, from what I recall most recently. But, but by the way, have almost zero risk from COVID because they've got a very strong natural immune system. Right. You know, and, and we're, we're pushing this on children. By the way, globally, that's not, not happening universally. I mean, there are plenty of countries globally that re recognize the risk and are responding to it, and we're not here in the U.S. Well, so let's touch on this before, before we go back to that question. You mentioned this global seeming, you know, everyone speaking Unision. Yes, okay, hydroxy, we're going to go by the way. So it's not 100, it wasn't 100%, but it was close, right? It was close. That's astounding. That's an astounding level of coordination. Some people have called it collusion, right? Um, how did that happen? I mean, not just on this issue, on many, right? With the idea of this, the, that vaccination was the solution, right? Well, I, I, I wish I had the full answer. But again, when you're Anthony Fauci and you've got a government agency that is granting tens, hundreds of billions of dollars of research grants uh, to you know, hospital systems and research universities, um, you know, and you've got grants from the Wellcome Trust, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Trust, they're all about vaccines. Uh, so you've got that money flowing, people don't buck the system. Um, when, when you've gone from 80% of doctors that are independent, you know, taking the Hippocratic Oath and, and taking that very seriously, that their primary responsibility is to their patient, not to a hospital or not to a federal health agency, and all of a sudden, 80% of doctors work for their hired hands. And they, they risk their, their license, they risk their employment if they buck the narrative. Um, so you've got all that grant, you've got so much control coming from that grant-making process, from the trusts and from the federal government, and it doesn't take very many people. And you can see, by the way, that same group of people. You know, Jamie Farrar of the Wellcome Trust, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates, you see Anthony Fauci. I mean, these guys, they're, they're all in the same circle. They're all going to the World Economic Forum. You know, th three years ago, if you would have talked about Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, you know, I would have probably said, well, why don't you go over there in the corner and talk to those folks over there? Not anymore. I, they've been brazen about what they've allowed their discussions, how they've been, allowed, uh, how they've been videotaped, and how open they are in terms of their plans. It's, it's, it's astounding. It's like you, you almost can't believe what they're saying. Um, so it is, you know, the, the, the world is run in many, in many respects from a very elite group of individuals globally. Um, 
something else we've witnessed during the pandemic, which is one of the reasons I've got this bill uh, to deem any agreement that the Biden administration does with the World Health Organization a treaty so it has to come before the Senate for ratification. Uh, I, I don't want Biden to completely be able to negotiate our sovereignty away when it comes to our, our health. So just to clarify, um, are you saying you think the World Economic Forum runs the world here, or is it the billionaires? Who are, who are you saying? I, I think there's an awful lot of an excess of influence over very powerful people. You know, world Economic Forum is one group. Uh, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates, you know, their, their, their trust, uh, you know, supposed to be beneficial. I think in many cases it probably is. The Welcome Trust, probably very beneficial. But when you're in charge of, of making those types of donations to different causes, uh, important causes, uh, causes that are uh, certainly publicized in the press, you have an inordinate amount of influence over, over what the process is. Um, and I guess I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a U.S. senator here, right? I, I, I have watched the profound dysfunction of this place where you know, our main function should be probably, and I hate to say this because I don't like spending money, uh, but should be to fund government and do it in a thoughtful way and make sure that we're not wasting taxpayer dollars. We don't do that. We, 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 don't, we don't even bring up 12 individual appropriation bills. I mean, there ought to be a lot more, okay? Over, over, you know, done in a, a, a more thoughtful or functioning process. But what we've been doing is we've been waiting until the fiscal year begins, you know, start passing continuing resolutions for a few months up until Christmas, and then everybody's worn down and, and somebody writes a multi-thousand page appropriation bill with all kinds of uh, policy prescriptions added into it. Nobody knows what they're voting on but so many people still vote yes. It's completely dysfunctional. Who's directing what's in those appropriation bills? Where the money's being spent? What little, what little phrase in a particular piece of legislation is being changed to, so over the years we end up with a framework where the, these people could shut down our economy the, the way they're able to shut down. I mean, I, I've seen the analysis of, of uh, individuals that have just gone back and just traced you know, the different laws that were tweaked or changed or enacted that kind of build up to our government's capability of sh shutting down small businesses, uh, allowing liquor stores to stay open, but uh, churches being shut down. Uh, this, this didn't happen in void. This happened over many years. I mean, who directed all that? Did they know what they were doing? I don't know, but it's completely out of control. And, and, it's, not, and it's not being controlled by the representatives of the American public. And the American public, as we talked about earlier, are easily propagandized. It's, it's easy to pull the wool over their eyes. And it's done repeatedly. And it's done by the left. I mean, let's, let's you know, I'll bring partisanship into this. It is the radical left that has infiltrated virtually every institution, not only of America, but globally. It's a leftist agenda. It's, a, it's an agenda that wants to control the population. They, they, they think they're so smart. They think they're such great angels that they need the power to direct your life. You're, you're not smart enough to direct your own life. You need them telling you when you can walk outside during a pandemic, whether or not you need to wear a mask. You, you need the technocrats. You need, you need the people that are the, the better angels, I guess. Okay? It's, it's grotesquely arrogant and, and full of hubris. But again, that, that's, that's, a, that's a group of elite people. They, 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 swim in the same circles, okay? They attend the same conferences.
They talk about these things and they videotape it. So again, it's not my conjecture, just watch the videotapes. You know, read Robert, you know, Bobby Kennedy's book. You know, read about those exercises. You know, in hindsight, they look very sinister. So let's talk about the um, corporatization of medicine. We've seen over the past few decades, you know, uh, frankly, we've seen it in many, many spheres, right? Certainly in tech, big tech and so forth, but in, in medicine as well. Um, there's been huge consolidation. There's fewer and fewer, you know, basically corporate employers of doctors now. There's a lot less individual practices. There's a whole bunch of reasons for this, but this has been kind of the societal direction. You talked about how, um, in many cases, doctors are kind of, their ability to enact the Hippocratic Oath is being threatened. There's a lot of incentive on them to basically follow the guidelines and not focus on the individual person and try to figure out what's best for them in their particular situation, but instead follow these kind of broad guidelines, which, you know, we're told they're not a rule, but given the incentive structures, actually they kind of almost amount to rules. And you have a lot of doctors which are, you know, basically paid this way and maybe even believe to some extent that this is the way to do things. Well, first of all, evidence-based medicine makes an awful lot of sense. You know, follow the science, right? But what happens if the science is corrupted? Uh, I think that's what's happened. I mean, we've, we've corrupted medical research because of all these grants. Uh, it's a very complex problem, but, you know, I, I would argue it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, there's kind of a number, you know, root cause of the corporization of medicine. It's because of the, the, the government stepped in and impose itself on medicine with Medicare and Medicaid. So now, you know, many, many decades ago, the patient paid something like 90 cents of every health dollar directly out of their pocket to medical providers. Now it's been exactly reversed. Uh, only about 10 cents uh, of what you pay for medical care for pharmaceuticals comes out of your pocket and 90% is picked up by a third party payer, either insurance company or the biggest dog on the block there is government. And so when government becomes such a 600-pound gorilla or 800-pound gorilla in the room, and they set the reimbursement schedules, you know, they, they determine what they reimburse for what they don't. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the things, classic example of this, during the pandemic, when nobody wanted to see anybody, you know, you had to do telehealth, which makes all kinds of sense, right? It's, it's so efficient. It's not, can't be used universally, but you can do an awful lot with telehealth, right? But we needed to get waivers from Medicare for doctors to practice telehealth. And again, it worked beautifully. But the pandemic's over and all of a sudden they've got to re-up those waivers. Well, why wouldn't you? Doesn't, I'm not sure that Medicare will do it. So again, evidence-based medicine makes sense. Medical protocols make sense until they don't or until the evidence is corrupted. And the only way you're going to, from my standpoint, bust through the corruption is you need greater independence across the board. Whether it's independent review panels looking at drug approvals, whether it's independent review panels uh, watching the, uh, the grant-making process, um, you know, certainly independent doctors using their independent judgment. I mean, every human being's different. You know, protocols may work 90 plus percent of the time, but people it doesn't and you have to that's that's where you need the doctor to use their medical judgment and, and also recognize they're human they make mistakes we, we can't sue them out of existence 
Um, it, it's a big old mess. You know, our litigious society is a big mess, but it's, you know, I, I put primarily the main blame on government seizing so much control over our medical establishment and, and, and not overall for the good. So one of the things that the Twitter files and other disclosures like in Missouri versus Biden, which we mentioned before, um, have kind of explained to me, you talk about the how society is susceptible to being propagandized. There's this kind of powerful, I guess, structure which is formed, right? And I, I call it the megaphone. Um, and it's basically this structure that allows for the creation of a perceived consensus around an issue in society. For example, the Russia-Ukraine war, the perceived consensus about what should be done about that and so forth. Or around COVID, what is the, all the vaccines are safe and effective, right? And that some portion of our population is quite susceptible to this, even to switch 180 degrees in the viewpoint within 24 hours. I, found, I would not have believed this, really, until we kind of, kind of see it in action to some extent. So this, this actually keeps me awake at night because this is, this is an incredible power to, 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 to wield, right? And there's multiple, so it's not, it's not just the media or it's not just social media, it's this kind of structure, you know, and perhaps emergent because of a shared viewpoint and so forth. And how do we deal with that um, when, you know, truth is, becomes a rare commodity or even pursuit of truth becomes a rare commodity? So as you're talking there, I'm thinking fellow travelers. Um, yeah, th there's not one person in charge. There's not two or three people in charge. But th there's a group of individuals that have pretty much the same leftist viewpoint uh, that, again, think they're so smart, they're, they're the better angels, that they, if you give them all the power, they can create a utopia. Okay, they, they can do all that. It just doesn't work. I mean, they, they, you, again, they won't admit that this hasn't worked. Okay, they'll... they'll They'll commission a study that says the vaccine saved, you know, two, three million lives. Okay, well, <laughs> what's the data on that? You know, prove that to me. Uh, they don't have the data. Um, so it's what, we're, it's what we're battling. We're up against powerful forces. Uh, they, they've had different goals, different aims throughout our history. I loved in Bobby Kennedy's the, 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 the movie, the documentary of on his uh, The Real Anthony Fauci, he starts out with Eisenhower's speech uh, about the military-industrial complex. Well, that's been replicated because of big government. Again, the, the core here, I mean, the, the essential ingredient to a military-industrial complex isn't big companies, it's big government. You know, companies are, are pretty well forced because of big government, government to come to Washington, D.C. to get some kind of relief. But once they come here, they realize, oh, this is actually pretty easy to uh, bend to, to our will. And so, you know, what, what was once regulated, uh, and, and those businesses may be fearing government, all of a sudden they become a willing participant and, you know, they've captured the agency. And so you have the military industrial complex, you have the pharmaceutical industrial complex, you know, you probably got a bunch of them. Okay, I mean, look, look what happen is happening with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. You know, so you got all these green companies, right? Uh, all these startups. Well, let's face it, most startups probably fail. It's not the best portfolio to have. If you're a bank, you probably want a few of those, but you also want some stable companies, you know, like, you know, like manufacturers just 
manufacture basic goods that are going to stay, you know, they do it like I did, you know, make money the, the old fashioned way, a couple cents a pound, okay? You know, solid businesses. But Silicon Valley Bank attracted all these IPOs. So it has all of these deposits. Um, again, it, it engages in holding assets, you know, again, according to Dodd Frank, uh, assets that don't even require a capital reserve because they're so safe. Well, they're, they're safe until inflation takes hold and then they start increasing interest rates and these things you know, uh, lose a great deal of their value and all of a sudden the bank becomes insolvent. But what does the federal government do? They, they, they don't do what they should have done, which is wipe out the shareholders and have the depositors take a haircut because they, they were stupid, they were negligent in making sure that they only had $250,000 of cash and everything else was invested in some kind of overnight, you know, some sweep account or whatever, you know, another asset. Uh, they bail them all out. But they're, they're bailing out companies that are all into environmental social governance, ESG, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. I mean, the, the, all these companies are focusing on that as opposed to making a profit and having a financially stable company and a financially stable bank. And so now we're underwriting the leftist agenda in Silicon Valley Bank. And we're doing it in a way that's just going to make the next financial crisis probably come sooner and it'll be worse. And it just builds on itself. But again, this, this, is, this is all the leftist cause. It, it makes no sense. Um, it's kind of what uh, Governor uh, Sanders talked about in her uh, response to the State of the Union. It's, it's normal versus crazy. What, what's happening in this country, what's happening in this world is crazy. How are they getting away with it? I, I, I don't have a good explanation for that. I think, is it yesterday or the day before, um, you had a pretty strong exchange with Secretary Yellen um, on this topic. Um, you don't think that things are being dealt with properly here? No, I mean, I, I laid out for her what I thought is probably the three main reasons of inflation. Okay, and by the way, it's inflation that sparked this bank crisis. Without inflation, they wouldn't have had to increase the interest rates. If interest rates weren't up, those bond values wouldn't have declined and put these banks in, in bankruptcy. So I'm saying, so, you know, are, we, are we willing to acknowledge what caused inflation? I laid out what I think are the three biggest causes of the current inflation. Massive. I mean, trillions of dollars of deficit spending. Inflation is pretty easy to define, right? Too many dollars chasing too few goods. Their war on fossil fuels. I never thought I'd see the day where gasoline was five bucks a gallon, but it was. So they drove up gasoline and energy, other energy prices to record levels. That obviously fuels inflation. And of course, the supply dislocations caused by the pandemic. Again, by our insane response to the pandemic where we shut everything down. So to me, those are the three main causes, but the number one cause by far is the printing of dollars, the classic definition of inflation. She came back to me, well, Sandra, I, I don't agree that inflation was a major cause or that uh, deficit spending was a major cause of inflation. I mean, I, even I was shocked by that answer. So if she's in charge and she's denying reality, if she's deluding herself, as I think this administration is, doesn't give me a great deal of confidence that they're going to actually fix the problem, which is, of course, what they didn't do. They, 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 they passed more deficit spending. They call it the Inflation Reduction Act. And of course, the media goes along with it. They don't take a critical look and go, well, how is the printing of more dollars going to reduce inflation? The answer is it's not. 
So it just occurs to me, like one of the areas where spending has been criticized quite a bit lately is on the Russia-Ukraine war. And I believe this is something that you voted in support of. One right? time. <laughs> one time. Okay. Well, no. And I, I'm just curious about sure. the thinking. That's all. Well, so I was on Senate Foreign Relations. I was the European chair and the ranking member on the European subcommittee. So I've been to Ukraine a number of times. I, I was at Poroshenko's inauguration. I was at Zelensky's nomination or inauguration. I was the only member of Congress there. I, I personally thought Zelensky was a real deal. Now, coming out of the private sector, I know the, the Ukrainian people are. I mean, they, they want what we want. They want to shed the legacy of corruption, the endemic corruption in Ukraine, you know, where you've got like 20-some thousand prosecutors. Uh, they don't pay them well, but they live like kings because you, so the, the corruption the Ukrainian people have put up with. So they wanted to rid themselves. And that's really what Zelensky, his platform was, to, to defeat corruption in Ukraine. Um, so, so, I'm, so I'm, I'm sympathetic with it. Okay? And then, you know, let's face it, Putin is just evil. Uh, he, Ukraine doesn't threaten Putin. You know, he just wants the territory. I mean, he's bombing population centers. He's committing atrocities, war crimes. So, I mean, how, how, can, you, how can you do anything to aid, you know, provide aid and comfort to Putin, okay? But you have to recognize reality. It's not a fair fight. It's not a level playing field. Putin can bomb population centers. He can step by step utterly destroy Ukraine. And Ukraine really can't effectively respond. I mean, the only way you stop Putin is if you could do respond in kind. You know, threaten Russian populations. Well, nobody's going to do that because they've got nuclear weapons. So I, I don't see an acceptable result of this war. You can just keep grinding it out. You can just see more and more death, more and more destruction. So at some point in time, you have to recognize that reality. So I voted for the first very early on where maybe there was maybe hope that showing support for the Ukrainians, provide them the, the lethal defensive weaponry they needed, could spank Putin hard enough for him, you know, like, like Russia did in Afghanistan, finally say no mas and leave. Well, that didn't happen. I don't see that happening. But another reason I voted for that initial package was we were depleting our own weapon stockpile and had to be replenished. A big chunk of that money actually went to replenish our own military supplies. So I voted for it one time. I haven't been very outspoken about this because, again, I don't, I don't want to give aid and comfort to Putin. But, again, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to know what to believe coming out of Ukraine. I was hearing reports earlier today about, you know, the Ukrainian people not all that supportive of this anymore. I, I don't know what the truth is. I know the Russian people are because propaganda is very, very effective. So, to me, this has got to stop in some way, shape, or form. We're not going to like the result. I realize that. I think we'll like the result less the longer this drags on and more Ukrainians are murdered and slaughtered and more of Ukrainians destroyed. I, 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 don't, I don't see how this gets better. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So at some point in time, this has got to be ended. Well, and, and now it's also basically driving, and this is, again, just days before we're doing this interview, we have you know, Russia and China kind of continuing to get closer and closer, which is, is, isn't a very good outcome. No, and, and, and listen, I, I don't want to encourage President Xi to take over Taiwan. Um, uh, you know, we, we need to, you know, to a certain extent, stop poking the tiger and the bear here, um, but also recognize the, the real threat they are. I, I, I wish, I wish they were nothing more than friendly competitors. 
but they're, they're malignant uh, adversaries. And so, so we do need to resist them. We need to resist them the right way. We need to resist them smartly. I, I think there was a way to prevent uh, Putin from invading Ukraine. I, I don't think he ever would have invaded with, if Trump had been reelected. We, we could have very visibly ramped up defensive weaponry earlier on. There are things we might have done to prevent it, but once it started, um, I, I just don't see, I just don't see a, any kind of result that we're going to find acceptable. Well, I'll share briefly, you know, something that I've shared with a number of people, which is when the price of oil is high, Russia has a lot more flexibility to do what it wants. And so, yeah. so we deluded ourselves. I didn't, but others did. They were going to slap on all these sanctions and bring Russia to the knees. No, the war is increasing the price of oil and put more money. I mean, more money is flown into Russia as a result of this. So, I mean, you, you, again, up front, you have to recognize the reality of the situation. And one, one thing about Washington, D.C., I've noticed is they're, they're not big into reality. Senator, let's go back to thinking about what to do here now, right? Because, you know, we've, we've kind of painted a very dire picture here. In this I'm, I'm not the most uplifting character, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, I, I also know that you have, you know, you, you haven't stopped your activities. You're continuing to pursue the truth and pursue some solutions, and you have some, and we've, we've spoken about them before. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, challenging this, well, frankly, these industrial complexes that, that we've been talking about here. Um, you know, it, it may seem daunting to the common man, common woman. Well, first of all, you start with a basic problem-solving process. You know, being, coming from manufacturer, manufacturing, I'm solving problems all the time. It's, it's just a basic process. First, you have to admit you have a problem. Then you have to properly define it. Then once you've defined it, then you got to take a look at what the root cause is. Then you can start designing solutions. In Washington, D.C., it almost always starts with a solution that's beneficial to somebody, you know, generally spending money. The solution is always spending money. So the overall solution is we need to reduce the size of the federal government and its influence over our lives. As it relates to federal health agencies, you know, define the mission of what we need those government agencies to do. We need, we need those government agencies. We need an agency that actually does protect the American public in terms of food and health safety. We, we really do need that. We need a CDC that gathers health information, for example, like on chronic illnesses, and reports it, and, and then makes their grants responsive to what we're seeing. You know, Bobby Kennedy talks about this, the, you know, the, the, the chronic illnesses in children, what it was, what it is now today. You know, autism, how it went from 1 in 10,000 to what is it today? I've, I've heard as low in some areas as low as 1 in 26. What's caused that? The asthmas, the allergies. You know, why, why aren't we talking about that in the news media? You know, if you want to whip people into, you know, a state of frenzy, at least do it on issues that are real. I mean, you've, seen the, you've seen these parents had a perfectly, perfectly normal child, two, three, four years old, go get a vaccine, goes into seizures, become autistic, never speak another word. Why can't we even ask that question? 
Why are those parents silenced? Why are they censored? Why aren't we looking at that? So again, I, I think the solution is pretty simple, is define the mission of these government agencies and then write the law so they stay bound within that mission. And they corrupt it and they don't allow big pharma, they don't allow outside interests to corrupt what their mission is. It shouldn't be that hard to do. And we could do it for a whole lot less money and a lot fewer people. Because the more people you have, the more people that are corruptible and can be corrupted and are corrupted. So again, you, you shrink the size, you focus the, the, uh, the mission. And again, for, for FDA, I, I would start really focusing on safety in, in uh, uh, food production operations. I would focus on drugs. You know, I how much are we monitoring the safety of drugs coming in from other countries? You know, that, that's always their, their uh, argument against drug reimportation from Canada. But they have no problem reimporting their own branded drugs from other countries without the FDA really being in their plants, as far as I'm aware of, and, and really paying attention to it. So get an agency focused on food and drug safety. Get an agency that's really focused on gathering information on public health, publishing it, and then an NIH that makes the grant dollars that are responsive to those health needs, the chronic illnesses. And there, there seems to have been a real corruption process. I mean, the you know, a whistleblower called, I think his name is Bill Thompson, provided data. I mean, that, that's been suppressed. That's just, that just went away. I mean, it was raised, and then it just got effectively deep-sixed again. People's eyes are starting to open up. People are, are asking questions. And uh, you got a guy like me, I've, I've got six years of just pursuing, uncovering, and then exposing the truth. And that's what I'm dedicated to doing. So, you know, you've told me that you actually didn't want to run. Why didn't you? Because the dysfunction here is profound. Um, at some point in time, you go, I just, I'm sick of it. And, but the primary reason I did run again is during the pandemic, I mean, nobody, nobody was doing what I was doing in Congress. I mean, the hearings I held should have been held in the, the help committees the health committees in both the House and the Senate, they weren't. I was doing it in Homeland Security, governmental affairs. I was using my position to, to highlight these things. Then even when I lost my chairmanship, I was holding these hearings. Nobody was, and then I got connected to the vaccine injured community. Nobody was advocating for them. You, you, you've met with them. You can't turn your back on people like that, that are just, you know, all, the, all they wanted was to be seen, heard, and believed because they want to be cured. We're spending all, tens of billions of dollars on, on research. Are we spending any money on vaccine injuries at all? Whether it's childhood vaccinations or whether it's the COVID vaccination. Are we even doing the research? I doubt we are because they don't want to know. They got a good thing going. They got the pharmaceutical companies being able to crank out a new vaccine. I don't know. I mean, if we're up 70 over how many years, it's more than one a year. No liability issue, and they just make a lot of money off of it. And it's just self-perpetuating. So they don't want to ask questions. They don't want to do the research. They don't want to know. It's called willful ignorance. And so, seeing as nobody else is really stepping up the plate to do this, in the end, I, I couldn't turn my back. And I, you know, I also can't turn my back on this country. This, 
this country is something rare and precious. It's not perfect. We're a long way from perfect. But the people of America are good, as I think most people are around the world. The problem is, is really bad governance around the world. But the people are good. And as I said in 2010, I ran on the platform of freedom. Because it is, it's the one essential ingredient, right? The, the way we were able to build this country was because people had the freedom to dream and aspire and build and create. If you crush that freedom, people won't be able to dream and aspire. We won't build and create. We'll become Venezuela. And we can't let that happen. So I, I saw your interview with Bobby Kennedy. I, I, I like his approach to this. He just... Uh, he doesn't create expectations for himself so he can never be defeated. He just gets up every day and he fights. And I guess that resonated with me because I guess that's my approach too. It's, I'm not going to let them defeat me. Um, they may, they'll, they'll try and silence me. They've, they've, they've gone a long way toward silencing me. they a long way toward marginalizing me and ridiculing me and vilifying me. But it hasn't stopped me. So it strikes me, you know, people say that fear is contagious, but I think one of the things that I've learned also looking at the pandemic, that courage can also be contagious. <laughs> um, well, Senator Ron Johnson, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Well, thank you for having me on. I I've, I've really appreciate what you're doing, what uh, Epic Times is doing. Um, you're doing real journalism, and that's what this country needs. It's what the world needs. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Senator Ron Johnson and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.